You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Good evening, uh, Harvest. Uh, my name is Craig Turnbull, and I am not Robbie Simons. And uh, actually, I got a neat thing to share with you. Uh, this weekend marks the fifth anniversary of God's faithfulness and God's amazing work in Niagara through Harvest Bible Chapel Niagara and Pastor Darrell Molino. Amen. 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 And so our senior pastor joins them this weekend to preach and to encourage his people, people there. And uh, we're delighted to release him to do that. And uh, I'm delighted to step in his uh, place uh, this evening uh, in the middle of a series. Now, I'll tell you, this is not the continuation of a big series. It's kind of a break and then a, a regroup and then going forward. Here's, here's the series we've been going through. We've been calling this the bullseye, what it looks like to be an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ or a Christ follower. And, and for the past several weeks, our, our pastor has walked us through uh, what we are to think about this, the theology, the practice, how we view God through all of this, that a Christ follower at his or her very heart is to be one who abides in fellowship, in, in, in connection with God. A Christ follower is also one who is to connect in community with other Christ followers. And then, and then last week, we learned that a Christ follower is one who is to share this faith. A, a genuine follower of Jesus Christ does not hoard their faith they share it. So relationship with God, relationship with the church, relationship with the world. That's been the inner ring. And, and then next weekend, when Pastor Robbie comes back, Lord willing, we're going to walk into that outer ring, which is going to walk us through as a church some extremely practical things about what it means to be a Christ follower. So if you've been sitting there saying, I want to do, I got to, I got to, that's next week, okay? And beginning on those next five weeks, Lord willing, the Lord will walk our through our church through all of this in an exciting and an amazing way. Uh, we've been talking about following Christ, and so uh, it seems right that tonight as we pause, we talk about the cost of following Christ. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 10? Matthew chapter 10. Uh, tonight, we're counting the cost. If I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, what does that actually mean for my life? Now, let me set you the context while you're turning to Matthew chapter 10. Uh, um, you need to know this about Matthew's gospel. At chapter 13 in Matthew's gospel, the tone completely changes. It's, it's like the, the hinge point of the gospel. Up until chapter 13, but our text is chapter 10, up until chapter 13, we've seen the birth of Jesus Christ, this amazing teaching of Jesus Christ, the healings and the miracles, and we've seen crowds following him that are just innumerable, people falling at his feet believing that this man to be the Messiah. But then chapter 13, the tone changes. There's less miracles. There's less public teaching and more parables, and it leads ultimately to his death. But chapter 10 is before chapter 13. And so we're on the upswing of Jesus' popularity. We're in the place where the disciples are riding the high. In fact, Jesus is gathering his disciples at the beginning of chapter 10, and he gathers them together. And you can imagine they're sitting there saying, this is it, this is amazing. Yes, let's do this. We got this. Let's do this. But then Jesus sits them down, maybe by the side of a road, and speaks to the 12. And he calls them to count the cost. He speaks to them with a loving heart to these 12 that he loves. Before they go out, you need to know some important things. 
It's cost counting time. Why, why is this so important? Well, because good coaches tell the, uh, their team what the other team is capable of, even if it's a sure thing. They train, a good coach doesn't say, you got this, you got this, you got this. No, a good coach says, listen, you got this, but here's what the other team is like. Here's what you can expect. Good parents will prepare their children for college, even if it's a sure thing and they've raised a great kid. They'll tell them that, that you know, this is what life is like in college. They won't say to them, you got this, you got this, you got this. They'll, they'll say, but, but here's reality outside these doors. A good general will prepare his troops, even if it's a sure thing, for the enemy they'll face. It doesn't help them to say, you got this, you got this, you got this, and then walk away. You have to tell them what they're going to face. Why is that? Why is this important? Because that's actually genuinely caring for someone. So Jesus sits his disciples down and tells them exactly what to expect. Why? Because he loves them. Jesus says to them, here's what life is going to be like. If you're going to follow me, Here's what it will cost you. He's going to rewire some heads in the passage in front of us today, and I pray, Lord willing, he'll maybe rewire some of our heads as well. Jesus stops us all on the road, sits us all down, and he says to us, I want you to think, think about the cost of following me. He's going to give them four things to think about. I want you to see the first in verse 34. Verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Today we're talking about the cost of following Jesus. The first thing I want you to see that Jesus wants us to think about when it comes to following him, to really follow him in this world. And the first thing he calls us to think about is this. Think, think, think sword. Think sword. Because divisions are coming. Jesus loves us this day, and he wants us to understand that if we're going to follow him, we're going to really follow him with our lives, uh, we can expect some divisions to be coming. Now consider how this would have dropped on the disciples who would have heard it in that moment. Just think about this. If we were to rewind the clock back before Jesus emerged upon the public scene in ancient Palestine, uh, maybe 2,100 years ago, we would have heard a buzz in the crowd in Jerusalem especially. Messiah, 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 the anointed one, the king, he's coming. He's coming, he's gonna set us free. You know, the Roman oppression we're under? You know, the Roman people with their, with their foreign gods and their foreign gymnasiums and their foreign filthy food and their oppression upon us and their incredible military strength? Messiah is coming. Do, do you read in Isaiah? He's the one who's coming to set us free. He's the one who's going to come and liberate us. Do you read it in Zechariah? He's coming. Stay watch. Look out. He's coming. In verse 34, Jesus, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. That word for sword is a thrusting Roman dagger. It's the same word of the, describing how the men were armed when they came and would later arrest Jesus. And, and, and if verse 34 had ended that way, that would have been great, right? 
I don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. You can picture the young man. At this time, Jesus is around 30, 33 years old uh, in his public appearance, teaching as a rabbi in ancient Palestine. And so the men that would be following him would be younger. So these are young men, young men in maybe their teens, late teens, early 20s. And then he says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. You can picture some of them, right? Simon the Zealot, maybe. Peter, certainly. Oh, yeah. Let's do this. I've come to bring a sword. Oh, yeah, Jesus. A sword. Let's do I knew it. I knew it. I knew you were the one. It's go time. And if it ended there, that would have been fine for them. But it doesn't end there. Verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Pin drop. What? What, what did you say, Jesus? My, my dad? My mom? M- my mother-in-law? Now, now, we lose sense in this, in our Western culture. Uh, many of us aren't from a culture where, where father and mother and, and mother-in-law and elders in our lives were highly esteemed. That's sad to say. In our Western culture, the individual is prioritized over anyone else. But in many cultures around the world, and certainly back then, a father and a mother and a mother-in-law were hugely important. I was describing my mother-in-law's visit just recently to someone. I said, my mother-in-law's in town, and the person immediately said, they, they chuckled. <laughs> but I actually like my, I love my mother-in-law, and she's really helpful. And, but that's our culture, right? We, did, we don't get it. They did. Our mother and my father? What did you say, Jesus? The, the, these, are the, these are the people closest to me. A, a, a new bride would move into her husband's house and, 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 and form a relationship, a strong bond with a mother-in-law. We read that even in the book of Ruth. A father is the king of authority in my life. I respect my dad. I, I respect my mom. That's their world. These are the people who were literally closest to them in that day. And you've come to bring a sword to them. And then Jesus says this phrase, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a second. Wait a second. We read the Old Testament, and, 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 and we read the prophecies of Messiah. And, and Isaiah, Isaiah verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 66, he's also described the Messiah as the one who brings peace. He's supposed to bring peace. And Jesus says, don't think that I've come to bring peace. See, the expectation in the disciples in that moment is a man-to-man peace. But that's not the peace that Messiah wants to bring. They were thinking a peace from political oppression, from from military might upon them, from their many outside enemies. They're thinking peace from that. 
But the peace that Messiah brings is more than just the absence of fighting, which men call peace. The peace that Messiah brings is a peace, the greatest peace, the peace between men and God. From, from a war that broke out in Genesis chapter 3, when man turned to God and said, no, not you, not your ways, not your rule over my life. You made me, but I am saying now that I rule my life. I'm God, not you, God. And since that time, right up until now, the battle has waged. Don't think that I've come to bring peace between man. No, I've come to bring peace between you and God. Divisions are coming between you and men. When I make this peace, Jesus says, there'll be a condition. Men won't like it. Divisions are coming. Divisions between you and those closest to you. Now, now the word behind set against in verse 35 there is, 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 is it literally to separate now, understand this, Jesus did not come to poison relationships, but he does recognize that when he comes and his message and the truth and the reality of who he is, that will separate some between those who believe and those who don't believe. Jesus, again, I, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring the sword. The, the boys stand up maybe and say, yes, let's do this. And he says, no, 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 the sword is, is for you and the people that are closest to you the people that you love the most in this world, the people who love you, the, the people who helped you with your homework when you were a kid, the people who gave you a popsicle when you had your tonsils up, the people who gave you 20 bucks to buy a pizza, the people closest to you, think sword. Now, of the 12 disciples, do we think that they all had great childhoods? Maybe some of them that wasn't their reality. Maybe some of them it was, you know the people closest to you? The people that already hate you? The people that have shouted at you all your life? The people who've thrown things at you? The people who've been cruel to you and mean to you already in this life? Think sword. It's going to get worse. Sword as Christ changes you and doesn't change them. Sword, as you leave behind the old life and they stay in theirs. Sword, as you start acting differently and they stay the same. Sword, as you choose different words but they choose the same words. Sword, as you have different desires but they've got the same one. Sword, as you love different activities but they don't want to do those things. Sword, sword, sword. Now this is one of these truths that God's word lays out that doesn't need to be explained all that much more. Because the reality is, is in, in this room, the hearts are nodding with this truth. This is a reality for so many of you. You get what this means. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You think sword because you live in a house, some of you, with sword. The cost of following Christ for you has cost you a relationship maybe with your father and your mother. Maybe it's cost you a relationship between you and your in-laws or, or, or maybe between you and your wife or maybe between you and your husband or maybe between you and your brother, or maybe between you and your sister, maybe between you and your grandparents, maybe between you and your children or your friends. You know what sword means. 
You've had it in your life. They're the people that are closest to you, and they don't believe the thing that's most important to you. Think sword. Divisions are coming. And the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace, he says to you, I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to be hated. I know what it's like to be laughed at. I know what it's like to be misunderstood. I know what it's like to be betrayed, to be hated, to be scorned, to be hit. And the Prince of Peace says to you, but I loved you, and I could not let you die in your sins at war with God. I endured the shame. I endured the betrayal. I endured the hatred. I endured the cross so that you might have this real peace, not the fake peace that men have between men. No, the real one that matters, you and God at peace, the peace that's there. But if you follow me, Jesus says to his disciples on the roadside and to us now, if you follow me, if you really follow me, divisions are coming. Expect no less than the sword. He wants us to think about the cost. Think sword. But there's a second thing. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Think sword. Second point is this. Think love. Desires are changing. Think love. Desires are changing. This is tough to hear. A, a, a book was penned a little while ago by a guy named William Neal, and he wrote it and said, the five hard sayings of Jesus, and guess what? This one's one of them. This is tough to hear. In their day, the rabbis are itinerant teachers, and Jesus would be classified his day job as a, as a rabbi. In, in their day, they would gather disciples around them, like we've already talked about, younger men than them. And, they, and then the rabbis would commonly claim precedence over them. Your chief responsibility is to me, the rabbi would say. I'm the most important authority. I'm the, most, uh, I'm the greatest male authority in your life. Uh, not your dad. But a rabbi never said this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now granted, in Jesus' words, he's not telling them not to love their father. He's not saying, don't ever love them. He's saying, you must love me more. I must be the highest love in your life. And then he says, and if it, I'm not the highest love in your life, your desires, they need to change. You love father or mother or in-laws or wife or husband or wife or, or brother or sister or grandparents or children or friends more than me, then your desire needs to change. They're the people that we love the most in this life. And that's the problem. And Jesus says, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me. Some translations have it, you don't deserve to be mine. Is the, is the bar high? 
What Jesus is saying here is essentially, I can't make anyone my disciple who does not love me more than he loves his father and mother. I can't make anyone my disciple who does not love me more than he loves his son or his daughter. And you can, you can feel the air leave the room when Jesus says this. He's asking for a lot. He's asking for everything. I just want to remind you in this moment that, that this, is, this is God's word speaking. Not a passage that's taught a lot, but this is, this is God's word speaking to us. I don't get to pick the verses that I want to include or exclude from the Bible, and neither do you. They're there. Think love. Your desires need to change. You, you must love me more, Jesus says. Can, can we just be honest in this moment? And just say that this is an extremely difficult thing to hear. This is a hard truth, a hard teaching to listen to. But, but, but can we also in this moment cling to a significant truth? I'm going to ask you to cling to this. This truth is that, that you would believe and you would believe by faith that Jesus is smarter than us. That you would believe by faith that Jesus genuinely loves you. And if you forget, look to the cross. He genuinely gave his life for you so that you would have life in him. And when he speaks, he's not trying to deceive you. When he speaks, he's not trying to ruin your life. He's trying to give you the fullness of his life. He's trying to love you. This is, this is not a line in the sand, harsh statement, you with me or are you with them. This is a statement of preparation. Loved ones, gather. If you're going to go out there, if you're going to face this horrible, sin-filled world, Jesus says, then you need to know some truth. You need to understand the reality of life around you, that Jesus, like a good coach, like a good parent, knows what his followers need to hear. And they needed to hear this. And I need to hear this, and you need to hear this. Why is this? Because, because I do love them so many days more than Jesus. I love my daughter Serena, and Maria, and my boy Abraham, and my wife Catherine, and my mom and my dad, and my brother, and my family, and my friends, on so many days more than I love Jesus. And Jesus says to me in love, that's, that's wrong, Craig. Your desires need to change. You must love me more, Jesus says. And why is this so wrong? Why is this so wrong, this, this chief of love placed upon those in this world? Why is this so wrong? Because they can't carry the weight of my love, of my broken sinfulness. They can't carry the weight. I'm asking too much for them. They aren't strong enough. They don't, they don't always love me perfectly. They're not always perfectly there for me. They don't always have perfectly wise counsel for me. They're sinful like me. Love me more, Jesus says. Find in me all you need, Jesus says. Abide in me. He will never leave us. 
He will hold our hand for us. He will be there for us. He, he is the source of our wisdom. He is the source of our strength, of our love for others. It begins with abide. Can, can, can we just cling tonight to the truth that Jesus is smarter than us and that Jesus' love for us is perfect and that when Jesus speaks this to his 12 disciples, he speaks it to us as well. You can't love them more. You need to love me more. If you love them more, you won't make it. That's the truth. And that's love. Think love. Your desires must change. But the teaching is not done. Still by the road, there with the disciples, we are told to think about the cost. We're, we're, we're told to, to think sword, and then now think love. And, and now I want you to look at this in, in verse 38. Think cross. Think cross. Difficulties are increasing. Verse 38 says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And that statement is the most shocking statement yet. By the way, it's also the first mention of cross in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has been walking around talking about cross, 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 I'll die on a cross. For us, on the other side of history, we recognize the cross is coming, but for them to hear the word cross, it would have been like bells and alarms. Why is that? Because, because a cross is a shameful thing. In Roman times, uh, capital punishments were often, most often carried about by crucifixion death upon a cross, especially if the offense was public and someone needed to be made an example of. Every soldier uh, was, a kill, was a trained killer. They would carry this, this, this two-foot-long sword that they could, they could kill with in the moment. They could have exacted capital punishment in the moment, but, but the cross, uh, that is public. And better yet for Rome, it's shameful. The closest equivalent we would have in our day and age is not the capital punishment of the electric chair. It's the shameful death of lynching. And if you were condemned to die upon a cross, you were, you were beaten and you were told to carry this cross to the site of your execution. Some 200, 300 pounds. You don't walk around these things with fun, for fun. You carry them to the place where you are going to die. And Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If you won't pick up your cross and follow him in death, Jesus says to them, you don't deserve to be mine. Is the bar high? getting higher. You must be willing to lay it down. You must be willing to lose your life, whether actually or by denying self. You must be willing to lay it down. What Jesus is asking for in this, in this moment is everything you have. He wants it all. Now, context is important. I want you to look ahead to verse 39 for just a second. Whoever finds his life will lose it, Jesus says, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For my sake. 
Carrying your cross, Jesus says, is, 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 is directly because you are following Jesus. Now, we get confused on this sometimes. Sometimes we call things crosses that we carry. We say, oh, that's my cross to carry. That's not really a cross that you're carrying. Uh, sometimes you're saying things that, that, that are crosses that aren't really crosses. You know, I got a lot of work this week. I, I, I work a lot of hours. That's my cross to, to carry. No, 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 no. Uh, you know, my home, it, it sprung a leak in the basement again this week. We, a leaky basement. That's my cross to carry. Or, or the tax man, hey, I got to pay all this money back to the tax man this year. Boy, that's my cross to carry. Or maybe I got to drive around in an old car. And boy, I'm Mr. Old Car. That's my cross to carry. No, no, no. Those aren't crosses. That's life. Things happen in life. Sometimes life is difficult. That's not a cross. That's just life. Sometimes we call things crosses that aren't really crosses. They're, they're actually results of sin. They're consequences from sin. You know, you know, oh, my kids are crazy. My kids, my kids never, I, I never spend any time with my kids. I never seek to, to care for my kids and love all my kids. They're, they're just nuts. That's my cross to, to carry my kids. No, that's a... That's a consequence in your life. Or, or, or my marriage is failing, my marriage is falling apart, I got, I got addictions in my life, but, but my marriage is falling apart, that's my cross. No, that's, that's your sin. That's not a cross, that's a consequence. We don't have enough money. We can't afford, the, but, 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 but you're not wise with your money. You're, you're frivolous with your money. That's, that's not a cross, that's a consequence. You're not suffering in those instances because you have willfully chosen to follow Christ, even though it's hard. You're suffering because you sinned. No, no. What Jesus is talking about here is a choice to follow him and lay life down before him. What that looks like, that looks like in my family, I choose to live out the gospel. I choose to lead my wife and my kids and care for them and pray for them and lift them to him even though it costs me energy and time and it isn't easy. At work, it, it, it means I work with integrity and honesty, recognizing that under God everything is seen even though it may cost me promotion or maybe even my job. Around others in this life, it means I freely give my time to others to serve them and to, to love them as Christ would have me love them, even though it costs me my me time. In my suffering and in my sickness, I choose to fix my eyes on Jesus. I choose to worship him in the hard days, even though I want to quit even though I've given up hope some days, even though I get so discouraged, I choose to pick up my cross and follow him. How about in our discipleship model? Uh, uh, abiding, what's that gonna look like? Uh, picking up my cross every day means I get up every morning and I, and I go to Jesus, even though it means I can't sleep in. Connecting, it means I get in and I, and I be in fellowship and community with others, even though sometimes people are messy. Sharing, it means I get out and I Share the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though it may mean, listen, even though it may mean that I get laughed at, I get mocked, I get alienated. I have chosen to follow Christ, and I will lay my life down to follow him. Think cross. When you do that, difficulties will increase. C.T. Studd was a, a famous uh, a missionary from England, and uh, he was the Michael Jordan of cricket at the time. Some of you love cricket. I don't get it, 
but uh, he, he was really, really good at it. And more than that, he came from a family of wealth and privilege. He gave it all up. He went overseas and served in missions, and he said this, if Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Think cross. Think cross. Difficulties are increasing. No sacrifice too great, but some sacrifices feel too great. And Jesus will have none of it. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I ask the question to myself, Craig, 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 is your sleep, is your, is, is your job, is your car, is your stuff, is your money, is your time, is your health, is the way that people think about you, is your relationships with others worth more to you than Jesus is? Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Funny thing about carrying a heavy cross, you can't carry something else. You can't pick up a cross for Jesus and decide, I'm going to carry this and this and this. I'm going to go with this and this and this as well. It's a two-hand job, all of your strength. You can't carry anything else. We could ask the question right now, where, where in our lives is there a cross laying on the ground? Where in our lives right now is, is Jesus calling me to step up and, 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 and endure and to sacrifice, and to die to self? Where is he calling me to pick up a cross? And where is that cross right now laying just dusty? Is it in my home? With my wife and my kids? Or my husband and my children? Is it, is it at work? Is, is it with my neighbors? Is it in this church? Where is God calling me to sacrifice? And I look and I see the cross, and it's just dusty. I'm not picking that up. It's going to cost me too much. It's going to cost me some of my time. It's going to cost me some of my relationships. I'm not going to do that. The, the cost is too high. You can't pick it up. You, you, you won't pick it up because it means you have to drop something that your heart loves. You, you can picture the disciples, can't you? Riding the high, yeah. And then a sword, love, and a cross, they probably turn to us, what have we gotten ourselves into? Why would we ever want to follow Christ? This one who brings a sword, who calls to be our highest love, who commands us to, 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 to cling to a cross. Can, can, we, can we just again grip the truth today and believe and believe by faith that Jesus is smarter than us and that Jesus loves us, that Jesus, like a good coach, like a good parent, like a good general, knows what his followers need, and it's not to live a life of self today. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Think about the cost, Jesus says, Think sword, think love, think cross, and now finally, think life. Delights, Jesus says, are waiting. Delights are waiting. Why, why, why is the cost so high? Because the reward is limitless. 
Why does it cost so much here and now? Why is it so hard here and now? Because Jesus is calling us to himself, the glory of himself. You know, most, most, most grocery stores have those vending machines, those targets for our little kids, and, and they walk out after, after walking through Walmart, and there's those vending machines, and they see them, and, they, and they're only geared for them, right? They're like, no, I don't want a little, a little uh, you know, an angry bird thing. But they do. They see it. Oh, gumball. How much is that? I want that. I want that. I want to sit there and turn the dials. Of, and we as parents say, don't, that's junk. Don't waste your money on that. Don't spend your money on that thing. Don't spend it. It's a waste. And Jesus says the same to us now. Spend your life for what matters most. Here Jesus makes two promises. It's about how you build your life, Jesus says. Let me show you this. Promise number one, build your life in the now. Whoever finds his life now, 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 will lose it. Promise number one, you love this life, you, you love the people in it more than Jesus, you love the things in it more than Jesus, you love the luxuries and the delights and the beauties in it more than Jesus Christ. Uh, it's like dropping quarters in the vending machines and trying to get the junk out of it. Uh, you're living life for self. And Jesus promises you, he promises you today, you will lose your life. Everything you hold, everything that you constitute and compile together, this is my life. I got this stuff. I got this stuff from vending machines. I love it so much. It's my thing. It's my thing. I got this new thing and that new person and this great relationship and this game and this goal. This is what I got. This is my life. Jesus promises you're going to lose it. All of it. If you spend your life this way, you will lose everything. Certainly at death. As the, as the tunnel of death narrows and you ask yourself, really, really, really? I spent my life on this? Certainly at death. Maybe even earlier. That's a promise. You build your life in the now, you'll lose it. But the other promise Jesus gives to us, you build your life in, in, in Christ, in, in, in Him, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Notice that this, this isn't, isn't, Jesus isn't saying, don't live for the now, live for later. He's not saying that. Did you notice that? He's not saying, don't live for the now, live for later. He's saying, don't live for the now, live for me. Me. Don't live for a future reward where you'll be given things to satisfy your flesh. Live for me now. Do you want to live your life in Christ do you, do you want to love Jesus more than your things? Is he your greatest delight? Is he your highest calling? Is he worth more to you than anything in this world, the job, the stuff, the money, your family, even your life? Well, the promise for you is this, that if you spend your life this way, you will find everything. You will find Christ. You lose yourself in Christ and you will find everything. I love Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Jesus, uh, uh, we read this earlier. Look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, for the days are evil. I think the Lord wants to call us to this today, to recognize, to see again with maybe renewed perspective, what am I living for? What am I choosing to build my life around that isn't Christ and won't last? Jesus stops the boys by the road, sits them down, and kindly and lovingly speaks these words to them. You gotta, you gotta count the cost, boys. If you're gonna love your life in this life, 
you'll lose everything. Everything you love is gone because it won't hold. You want to love me? Then you'll gain everything. And what will you gain, believer in Jesus Christ? You will gain Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is even better. Do you want to follow Jesus? It'll cost you everything. They'll bring the sword, change your love, bring the cross, but you will find your life in him. And in the end, in the end, everything that you have given up for Jesus, everything that you have lost for Jesus isn't even a fragment of what he lost for you, but in the end, everything that you've given up that you thought was everything, you will learn that that was nothing at all. Come, Jesus says, follow me in love tonight. Don't live for those things. Don't live in this life. Live for me. Live for what will last. Live for a greater joy than you can even imagine. Will you follow? Perhaps even the better question is, do you believe that he's worth it?